Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The story of Frankenstein is deeply embedded in our culture. It even resonates with those who've never read Mary Shelley's book and who assume that Frankenstein is the name of the monster, not its inventor. The full title of the novel is Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, relating Frankenstein to the figure in ancient Greek mythology who was punished for defying Zeus. These notions of hubris were taken up by all faiths and seem to be deeply embedded in human culture. Nowhere more so than when it comes to the question of organ donation and transplants. Professor Simon Kay of Leeds University is a transplant practitioner and he challenged such assumptions on the naked scientists. The internal human being resides within the cranium. And if you have an alert, active human brain and you have a body that is failing, then there is a logic to saying, well, can I replace the body? And there's no theoretical reason why you can't. So if you have a quadriplegic with organ failure, what you might say is, well, the body is an inert support mechanism for the brain, and I'd like to exchange that. But I see no overriding technical reason this can't be conducted as long as you're not expecting the body to function mechanically and get up and walk, because connecting the spinal cord is the holy grail of spinal surgery, and that's nowhere near at the moment. His reflections may sound scary, but there are alternative transplant narratives. Giving up a kidney to save the life of a loved one, for example, could be construed as the ultimate act of altruism. Organ donation is our topic this week. Faustian pact or compassion in action? With me are Dr. Julian Hubbard, fellow of Jesus College Cambridge, where he runs their intellectual forum and patron of Humanist UK. And Professor Gertz Randawa, director of the Organ, Donor and Transplant Research Centre at the University of Bedfordshire and a member of the government's organ donation task force. So before we look at the Holy Grail, let's just recap where we are in terms of legislation and the law on organ donation. Gertz, where are we now? So we have the imminent law change uh, upon us in terms of 
the introduction of deemed consent. And obviously that's taken several years of public engagement, dialogue. Um, and as you kindly referred to, I was on the government task force that originally looked at this issue back in 2008. And I think the consensus is that the status quo is not good because we've got lots of people who are still sadly dying, waiting for a transplant. So opt-in in itself doesn't uh, have the impact that we'd like it to. I think there's still inevitably a debate about the merits of opt-out. Um, and there are some early learnings from Wales. Um, and just for what it's worth, I'm on record as being on the task force for saying that it's not deemed consent or opt-out that's going to have the impact. It's going to be meaningful public engagement. And that's the lessons that we should be learning from other countries. And Julian, you were involved in the early stages of the discussion in Parliament. Uh, what were the issues that were raised then? And how much have we moved on in terms of that public discourse? I mean, I think we've moved a long way. And, and the, the, the idea of, of moving towards opt-out is very powerful. I mean, I agree with a lot of what Gert said, that a lot of this is about communication and talking. And actually, I'd much rather everybody had sensible conversations with their family and their loved ones, what they would like to do before and after death. You know, we, we see this, you know, in the COVID crisis, we've seen this around the, the I think, rather blunt instrument of, of DNA CPR, uh, or the rather better respect process, which is about saying, what would you like to happen to you? You know, if, you re- if you're reaching the end of your life, do you want everything done possibly to keep you alive? Or would you rather, for example, die at home, even if it's a bit earlier, you'd rather say that. Having those conversations, I think we as society don't do often enough. So that applies in, in how you'd like your life to end, but also what happens after end. You know, the difference between opt-in and opt-out is essentially irrelevant if everybody had the individual conversations first. The issue was is that while a small fraction of people really get, proactively opted in and a few people very much want to opt out, there's a large group in the middle who haven't had those thoughts and conversations. And there's always this question, what, what's the default? What should you do there? And I think it's a huge step forward so that people who will be encouraged to make the decision which will help save others' lives while preserving that space for people who don't, who don't want to go through organ donation. Gert, you mentioned a little bit of a precedent in Wales. They were ahead uh, of the rest of the UK. What have we learned from that? Or have there been some lessons? Yeah, so in, in Wales, um, the head of population, they invested a lot of resource in the public engagement uh, piece of work. So essentially, uh, this is what the academic evidence shows, in the countries where donation rates are high uh, post the implementation of opt-out, it's actually quite difficult to disentangle the impact of the public engagement campaigns and the law change in itself. So I think one of the, if you like, um, the catalyst that a law change offers, it it, it initiates a a reinvigorated, well-resourced public engagement activity. Um, So I think that's one of the big pieces of learning. And I think that's why I think it's really important that during COVID-19, we don't lose sight of this important learning, that we must take the public with us on this law change we must continuously engage with them so that they remain uh, trustful 
of government and trustful of the state because my research has shown, especially amongst our black and minority ethnic communities, mistrust of government and mistrust of the NHS is quite an important issue that sometimes stops people from opting in. And so we must maintain this close dialogue. And are those uh, BAME communities, is there uh, a resistance to this or is it just a sort of indifference? No, I think, I mean, so I, I, I was fortunate enough to be commissioned by NHS Blood Transplant um, about seven years ago to develop, uh, as far as we're aware, the world's first faith and organ donation action plan. And that essentially was building upon this notion of trusted environments for conversations. So we know that, especially in a lot of BAME communities, faith is a really important issue. And we know that faith leaders hold a very privileged position. So it's about developing partnerships so that communities weren't asked to support organ donation because your faith supports it, but they're actually asked, as um, Julian's really helpfully highlighted, to have the conversation, to say that, you know, what are the different faith interpretations around organ donation? And what does that mean to me as an individual? What does it mean to me within my family? And I think those sort of uh, pieces of work were incredibly powerful and important. And we've seen that those faith uh, communities have now taken on the sort of mantle of actually promoting awareness of the law change amongst their congregations. So they've come on side about the very piece that Julian's highlighting. They've come on side to say that actually having these conversations is so important so that everybody, and most importantly, your family, know what your wishes are. And have the faith communities, before we talk about the, the, the humanist uh, uh, view, Julian, but going back to Gertz, have, have, they, have there been any faith communities that have been particularly reluctant? I mean, one of the areas, I remember you attending one of the conferences looking at organ donation and, and, and different faiths in, in Cambridge, uh, is the question of definition of death. Um, yes. And so are there areas of, of resistance that are specific to faith communities? So I think a lot of this is around um, cultural ideology that morphs into sort of uh, perceptions around faith. Um, so I don't think it's a sort of um, black and white about saying it's a faith issue or a cultural issue. So, for example, you know, a lot of people find the notion of brainstem death difficult because if you like uh, the way media has portrayed it, the way novels have portrayed death, you know, we always look to see the heart stopping beating. So that's how we as a public have sort of, you know, been attuned to thinking about this. And therefore, a lot of religions, um, so a lot of the work I've done, for example, in the Catholic community, in the Jewish community, they find this very difficult. Um, so a lot of the work we've been doing with those communities has been around, let's have a dialogue about what it means to me, dead. And only once we can have that dialogue can we really then have a meaningful conversation around organ donation. Julian, offer us a perspective from Humanist UK, if there is a specific one. So, I mean, obviously, humanists have a have a different way of thinking. We're not a, a monolithic group. Um, try, trying to get a, a group of humanists to have a single view on those things is quite is quite tricky. Um, I think one of the things, though, is that because we don't have that perception that there is something after life, 
that when you are dead, that is it. Some of the historical objections that some faith groups have had about uh, the sanctity of body for resurrection or various other purposes just simply don't apply. You know, none of that's relevant. There is still a sort of understandable society squeamishness about sanctity of the body. It's not just for religious reasons that for, for thousands of years we've had quite strong views often about what should happen to a dead body. Um, and many of those still exist. We see that around the world. Um, uh, real concerns about post-mortem, about how you treat a dead body. I think most humanists would, on the other hand, look at the, 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 the very dynamic and clear benefits of being able to help somebody else. Um, and so there's that sort of very clear dynamic. Um, there is nothing further for me after my death, but there can be by helping other people. And I think that's, you know, an incredibly powerful thing. It's not just humanists, of course, but it, it, it's a very powerful drive for somebody who, I don't, you know, who, who, who draws their moral value from what you can achieve. All you can do after your death in a humanist world is either through your work, your family, or in this case, your organs. So that demonstrates how much there is in common between uh, religions and, 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 and beliefs, if you like. I, I'd like to bring out some of the resistance, though, before we, we move further um, and why the change in the law was so controversial. Um, let's start with you, Julian. Again, in terms of Parliament, there was some resistance, wasn't, resistance wasn't there? And it wasn't simply uh, a religious resistance. There were, there were other uh, concerns about organ donation. Uh, yes, and, and it's something which, which should be debated. And there, there were a range of views, and some of them were... Uh, as I remember, some re religious ob objections. But mostly those were really about whether people were being coerced into it. Um, and there are really tricky issues where, uh, because you would like ideally, as I said earlier, to reflect people's genuine views. If people haven't recorded them, uh, the process is going to be that uh, families will be asked to say, did they have known views that they would want to opt out? And that could be quite tricky you know how do you deal with somebody who felt very strongly that they did not want to have their organs used and you know I, I may or may not agree with their decision but it should be their their decision how do you deal with the case where they didn't register that in any way how do you protect them from, from abuse and misuse that's really tricky I think the other big concern was what happens if family and next of kin have a very have a different view um, when does when should the family be allowed to override the wishes of the individual. Um, that's easy if you know, as again, if you know exactly what the wishes of the individual are, but it's quite hard otherwise. So there are questions about how you think about the, those deemed defaults. Um, there's also a, 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 um, an argument, which I guess in some ways goes to some of the concerns about, you know, the old utilitarian argument that, you know, from utilitarian, pure utilitarian perspective, it would be ideal if um, organs, which we had a spare one of, could just be taken at will, if it would save somebody else's life, then you could run the argument, be sensible, just stop somebody on the street, take their organ out, save another life. Um, we're all uncomfortable with that. Um, we don't. And so people were concerned that people might just be seen as organs to harvest. You know, none of us want to see see that sort of route. And I think if we, if we look at the countries and we're always told to look at Spain because they're number one in the world for donation rates, the fundamental difference that I've argued uh, between Spain and the UK is in Spain, you will struggle to ever see a media story about a recipient uh, or of uh, somebody who needs a transplant because their whole narrative is about donors. 
because that's what we're trying to champion. We're trying to champion the act of donation. So uh, one of the sort of very few but humble achievements I, I've managed to achieve is to persuade government to change uh, what we used to historically have National Transplant Week. It's now called National Organ Donation Week because that's what we're trying to champion. Um, and I think if we could work with the media to actually really champion and give visibility to living kidney donors, to uh, donor families who have obviously lost a loved one, but are then impacted by saving, you know, up to nine people's lives, that would have a remarkable change on the culture of donation in this country. Um, Because at the moment, I would challenge most people to name me a deceased donor. You know, we can't, most people. And yet most people can tell me about all the very famous people who've received a transplant. And I always normally say to them, oh, did you know that they had a, a living kidney donor? And and I say, can you name the donor? Most people can't. And, and, and I think that's what we've got to really get into. If we really fundamentally want to change donation rates, we need to recognise the act of donation. So I think one of the most fantastic uh, uh pieces of recognition we have in this country is where tragically when someone in the armed forces loses their life and normally um, every part of media every channel will broadcast their name and show their image and that's normally done obviously with the family's permission and I think something akin to that should be the norm for donors that uh, obviously if their family consent that donor's name and their image should be shown on national TV. And um, then we would really see a big normalisation of organ donation. And I think fundamentally, for me, that's the key issue that needs to change, regardless of the law. I've never heard that articulated like this before. I think it's really profound and compelling. I was also struck because I think Israel is probably the only place to do this that I'm aware of where they have a a sort of reward system where if you are a donor, you get priority access to organs. Now, I'm actually uncomfortable with that, if I'm honest, that, you know, that you and your family get some sort of reward. This strikes me as a much better way to make donors into the heroes that they are. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Dr. Julian Hubbard and Professor Gert Randwawa. And we're talking about organ donation. Great advances have been made in the field of medicine in recent decades. And here's Professor Simon Kay again, speaking on the Naked Scientists. The first hand transplant took place in 99. And the most important hurdle that we didn't appreciate in the very early days is the behavioural one of the psychology of the patient. The other main hurdle that was much vaunted but actually proved to be very easy to deal with is the immunological rejection risk. The great thing about a limb transplant that has skin is that when it begins to reject you can see it immediately as a rash. So we found actually that the issue of immunological rejection is relatively straightforward to deal with. The other barrier has been understanding whether the long-term regeneration of the nerves and the recovery of movement and feeling in the limb is going to be at a level that we would think is useful. And I'm pleased to say that's proved to exceed our expectations as well. 
there have been massive changes medically, of course, in, in the last 25 years. How has that impacted in terms of organ transplant, Scourge? Well, I think one of the best developments, again, and I think this country's pioneered this, is we've seen massive improvements in allocation policy. So because of improvements in medical technology, we're able to now uh, cross-match a lot of organs that previously wouldn't be eligible for some communities. So, for example, uh, most members of the public aren't aware of this, that most uh, minority ethnic uh, transplant recipients actually receive their organs mainly from white donors because there is, is insufficient uh, organ donors from uh, minority ethnic groups. But because now we have um, improvements in uh, tissue type matching and blood group matching, we're able to do that. So I think that's been one of the biggest um, changes. Where are the limits now? Do you, we've, we've, we've pushed the limits incredibly far away from where we were 25 years ago. But where do you see the limits now, both technically, but also, if you like, philosophically? Well, I think there's always been ongoing debates about, for example, uh, using um, animal organs uh, for transplant uh, stem cells. Um, So I think, you know, over the next decade or two, we're probably going to see even more developments in that direction. Whether they'll actually take place, I don't know, because I think this is why it, it's, it's such an interesting human challenge. Because if we don't, if we do feel uncomfortable with those developments, then I genuinely feel the only alternative is to have far more normality of accepting that, you know, uh, living donors do exist and let's see them everywhere and uh, celebrate them. Uh, deceased donors do exist and let's recognise, you know, uh, the donor families. Julian, where do you see the limits? Um, so I think to me, they're largely technical. You know, what what can we do? What can't we do? Um, I, I think I remember seeing some reports of face transplant that, that was being attempted. I think that's sort of, you know, not really there yet. But there's been some amazing stuff, you know, Royal Papworth is now doing... Um, uh, non-beating heart transplants. You know, we were talking earlier about the question of what is death, and actually now you can take a non-beating heart, which you know by by other definitions would also be dead, and still use it uh, to save somebody. I think the opportunities for using stem cells, in, in particular, could be very exciting. Um, it enables us to produce more organs so that we don't have a, a long waiting list. It could enable us to make sure that you match much more appropriately. To the, to the person who, who needs an organ, um, rather than having to wait for the right person to happen to die or be willing to, to spare a, a kidney or other um, organ like that. Um, I think there are detailed ethical questions, absolutely. But at the first past, I'm very, very happy with that. And I hope that we can see it because of the huge benefits that, that could arise. I'd like to push back a little bit on this question because we're we're ever so positive in our conversation and we're talking about improving the narrative and and the, a, a more informed public discourse and getting the public to see it as a uh, uh, from a slightly different perspective. Uh, but in my conversations before this podcast. Um, the reason I brought up Frankenstein was that people were concerned. You know, there's a sort of um, the imagery that goes around some of this and the question of what is a human and, you know, when do we lose our humanity? If I'm made up of 99.5% of foreign, and I put that in inverted commas uh, for the listeners, um, it, you know, it, it, are, we, are we having a fair playing field? And, 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 you know, there's something that makes me a little bit squeamish, I hear from people. Or is this just, uh, you know, human weakness? 
I mean, it's it, it, it's understandable that these questions should be explored. You know, the, the the idea of the ship of Theseus that's gradually replaced has been around for you know thousands of years, um, but we're already okay with some enhancements. You know, uh, three of the four of us are wearing glasses. Um, you know, we have no problem with that. Um, we're getting better at prosthetic limbs, and I think you know people are accepting the idea that that's gone from being a sort of wooden peg leg to being something which actually can be much more useful and much more dynamic. There's clearly a line when something like that becomes more internal, uh, but we have pacemakers. And I think most people don't find somebody with a pacemaker as being less human. Um, for me, I think, you know, consciousness for me, the, the, the epitome of being a human is, is, is in the brain. Um, so I'd be relatively relaxed about the rest of it being replaced from that perspective. I think there are some other ethical as well as massive technological challenges if we were to start changing the brain, I, I think that's where I might start to uh, to wonder. I'm not sure I could pinpoint exactly what the line is between patching in something to help detect vision or sounds on the on the periphery of the brain and changing something inside. I'm not quite sure where I get get to on that. Um, but then I'm not sure with some brain surgery where we get to on that and people are relaxed about brain surgery, even though we know that changes to the brain physically can have quite strong uh, mental effects. But I think there is much more that we could do that to me, I, 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 I find the the yuck factor and the literature interesting. But I find saving people's lives and improving quality of life much more interesting. So, Gertz, for Julian, it's the brain. And of course, we had the, the first clip touched on the question of the, the spinal cord. Is, is that the same for you? Or is all things all things possible? So I think Fundamentally, um, most people would probably agree that it's the brain, if, if you like, is going to be their sort of tipping point as to where you uh, would draw the line. Um, but again, I think, you know, we've got to start articulating more human stories to counteract these narratives. So I think, one, you know, one of the successes will be that with this imminent law change, it's going to also be called Max and Kira's Law. So this is a human story of, you know, this heroic girl, Kira, who tragically died. Her heart was donated and has saved um, the life of Max. And I think the more we can um, publicise and engage uh, the different communities around these human stories and, and by giving the Max and Kira law narrative, you can imagine that, you know, you could be a school child or at university or an employer, or, you know, across all age and demographic groups, Max and Kira's story will resonate more so than Dean consent. And I think that's where we have to sort of focus our energies in the future. And of course, one of the interesting aspects of the Max and Kira story is the cross gender. Um, that, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not focused on one particular gender. Um, and is is that that that's obviously important in terms of the narrative. Um, but are there any particular challenges in terms of gender? We touched on uh, ethnic and uh, minority groups at the beginning. Are there particular issues as far as gender are concerned in transplants? Yes, there are. And again, you know, it's a phenomenon that we see across the world that most living kidney donors tend to disproportionately be women, um, either as um, mothers donating to their children or spouses um, donating to their partners. So I think this is something that we need to be mindful of as we progress um, organ donation transplantation to see greater gender equity. 
And again, is that down to, you think, education and the right communication? I think it's also about, you know, just um, historical dynamics between families. Um, so, you know, uh, the, the working uh, patterns have changed drastically in this country, but we have to recognise in many countries, you know, still uh, there are less opportunities for women to work. And therefore, if you like, a financial equation is set out that, you know, what's more cost effective in terms of who is the most eligible living kidney donor, it may well be the person who doesn't currently have a job because that's financially viable. And in a lot of countries, that tends to be women. Um, so I think it's, you know, it is education, but it's also about recognising people's uh, financial situation. Well, we're, we're drawing towards a close and I can't help but end with this final question, which is asking you to predict or look back in, in five or seven years time um, when hopefully life has returned to uh, normality and you're in the studio rather than uh, uh, in your homes. Um, uh, uh, but where would you like to see the conversation, um, Gert, start with you in terms of um, organ transplants and donation? So I think consent rates, so family consent rates has been the big issue for the UK. That's what really drove the law change. So we've, you know, plateaued on around um, 60 odd percent. And um, the best countries in the world, Croatia, Spain, have family consent rates of 80 percent. So for me, that would be the key metric. But ultimately, family consent rates are driven by um, the public discourse. So, you know, I'll go back to it. You now, I've got two teenage kids. They are big fans of, you know, the singer, Selena Gomez, who's got over like 200 million followers on Twitter and whatever. They all know she had a kidney transplant, right? And amongst all my kids' uh, friends, not one of them can tell me who um, was her donor. It was a best friend, Francia Racer. Um, and that's what I would like to see change, that, you know, just as we all know, Max's donor was Kira, I would want to, in the future for the donors to be on the tip of our tongues. And that's the kind of normal conversation we're having. And we're not seeing it as a morbid type of um, issue to talk about. Um, yeah. So if I have to pick something else, I think it would just be simply having a shorter waiting list. Um, you can have fewer people waiting for organs that are desperately needed, either by reducing the number of organs that are needed. And in, in some cases, though not in all, that can happen through prevention, through other health approaches, or by having a greater supply of organs, which is either from humans or from, from alternative sources. But having fewer people waiting, not knowing if they will ever get the opportunity to have that life-saving event, the more we can bring that number down, the better. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Julian Hubbard and Gertz Randhawa. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time.